I was in the food for less, and up emblazoned on the wall was these words, our name says it all. In a very real sense, I think that same sentiment can be said about the name of our church. It is the home church. And uh, for all those wonderful years since its inception, Bible Baptist Church, which is, of course, a a wonderful reminder of our heritage and uh, what we believe, But when we added that name, the home church, and really effectively became known as the home church 25 years ago, it became both descriptive and predictive. I believe going forward that our church has a very unique place in our community. More and more, I sense God telling me that this church has a a footprint in this whole region that is very unique. We're not the only gospel-preaching church, we're not the only people who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I do know this, this is at least one place where biblical convictions are very clearly being outlined, both for individuals and for families. You better believe I'm interested in growing a church, but I am more interested in growing people. And if growing people means that we can't grow our church, then so be it, because we will stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are setting aside days like this occasionally, and although we certainly um, preach it throughout the year, but once in a while, I think we need to take a day to both edify and educate our people our young people especially, those of you that have got a few uh, miles on your speedometer, you you know uh, perhaps better, you've been more aware of the devil's uh, inroads, but for the young people, the millennials and the Gen Xers and whoever else especially, we are constantly subject to a barrage of unbiblical thinking. I would say 99% of what is either in the media, on the television, on the radio, on the internet, from educational sources, from the business world that we're in, pretty much 99% has a lie or is a lie. As a result, God's people, I think, have gotten fuzzy even about some of the things that are bedrock to what a church ought to be and to who we are as Christians in our society. I'm going to share with you for a few moments a message. I believe it is a sermon, but it is a position. It's a statement. It is a proclamation. It's a declaration. We need, like never before, to be very clear and unequivocal about what God teaches and what our place is in this community. In 1947, sociologist Dr. Carl Zimmerman wrote a text. If you want to get these, we'll give them to you later. They'll come up on the board here, but uh, we can get them to you if you can't write them down quick enough. 
In it, uh, he identified 11 symptoms of final decay. He based this on um, historical observations in the fall of both the Greek and the Roman Empire, the two great world empires. As we go through these 11 symptoms, written in 1947, I want you to uh, think how they might apply to our culture today. Number one, the first thing that characterized the Greek and Roman culture and its fall was no-fault divorce. Number two, a birth dearth, that is, a, a lowering of birth rate, an increased disrespect for parenthood and for parents. Number three, meaningless marriage rites and ceremonies. Number four, defamation of past national heroes. Number five, acceptance of alternative marriage forms. Number six, widespread attitudes of feminism, narcissism, which is just uh, focusing on self, and hedonism, focus on pleasure. Number seven, propagation of anti-family sentiment. Number eight, acceptance of most forms of adultery. Number nine, rebellious children. Number 10, increased juvenile delinquency. And number 11, common acceptance of all forms of sexual perversion. Seventy years ago, Dr. Zimmerman wrote, these 11 things are indicators of the decay of a society. That was 70 years ago. He issued it as a warning to America. And my friend, here we are 70 years later. And how many would say that you see America in these 11 things? I tell you what, it's scary. And that's why today we are preaching a message a little bit different. Uh, I believe it'll be uh, an edification to you, but perhaps maybe more importantly, it'll be an education. And that is that we as the home church declare we are pro-marriage, pro-children, and pro-church. And in so doing, we are strengthening the foundation of society. Now, we're going to preach this message. I'm going to pray. Those of you that have little children, you might uh, uh, be able to take them out uh, if they get uh, a little anxious there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity. I pray, God, that you would just speak now to us today. And I pray, oh, Spirit of God, that you would come down. And may, Lord, we grant that with boldness and yet, Lord, with a deep compassion, we might to care for those who... Uh, really need this word, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you'll notice in the title of my message, we are pro-marriage and pro-children, and we are pro-church. It's interesting the uh, terminology that we've chosen in this society. The uh, liberals portray themselves as pro-choice. They uh, portray themselves as pro-love or pro-values. The truth is they're just trying to put a positive spin on something that is against what God teaches. When they write about Christians who believe that uh, a person shouldn't have an abortion, they call them 
anti-abortion or anti-gay or anti-freedom. But the truth is, nothing could be further from the actuality. No, we are not anti-life. We are, which anti means against. We're not against anything. We are for what God says. The truth is, the life givers in any community are not those who go against Scripture, but those who follow Scripture. Just look at the history of America. Almost all the educational institutions were brought about from Christians. Just about every medical institution from Christians, orphanages from Christians. No, it's always been those that are pro-Bible and anti-sin. You, any good gardener knows you can't be anti-vegetable, or you can't be pro-vegetables unless you're anti-weeds. You've got to be against these things. Now today, I feel like uh, Ezra. The Bible says that Ezra took uh, the scriptures. And he had a a whole generation of people who had been born in Babylon. They weren't raised in Israel. They were raised in Babylon. They were educated by Babylonian teachers. They were taught by those who had the Babylonian thinking. But through this amazing act of God, they came back to Israel. And God brought them back. And Ezra stood at Watergate, the Bible says, on a pulpit of wood, It says he read the scripture, and then a key thought, he gave the sense thereof. You see, that is the responsibility of a man of God. He is to read the scriptures and then give the sense thereof, because if you're raised in Babylon, your thinking is different. And so it is the responsibility of our leaders, our spiritual leaders, to give us the sense of what God is saying. And so that's why, for some of you, this message this morning will be, yep, got that down. Check, check, check. Others will be like, really? That's amazing, or that's so important. Whatever the case is, for all of us, I think it's important to have these thoughts. Number one, I would say this, that the home church is unashamedly pro-marriage. In the book of Hebrews, it is an amazing doctrinal book, very deep. It basically portrays that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything we've ever thought of in every ritual and every type in the Old Testament. And then in chapter 13, he kind of breaks with the situation over there, and he gives us um, a practical reminder. And so let's go to Hebrews 13 and verse number 4. Hebrews 13 and verse number 4, the Bible says, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now, 2,000 years ago, God gave a command to the church and to God's people. We need to value marriage. God ordains the institution of marriage. It is not a product of social evolution. If it's from God, therefore, It ought to be respected, it ought to be treasured, and it ought to be protected. It was instituted in the garden. It was instituted in paradise. It was pre-fall. God knew that the best choice for mankind, the best thing for humans, was that they not be alone. And so God married the first couple, a genetically born 
or given male human, a genetically female human, not to homosexuals, not anybody who's transgender, and God performed a marriage. It would have made all the sense in the world not to worry about a marriage. Nobody was there. There was nobody even around, but God thought enough about marriage that He wasn't going to even allow them to live together unless they were married. God ordained marriage in the beginning. From day one, He said, you must make a covenant with each other and a covenant with me. There's three people involved in every marriage. Christ Himself married, or excuse me, honored marriage with His presence. At the very first miracle in Scripture, recorded miracle, He, at the marriage feast of Cana, He came there. Marriage is honorable, God said. Anything that hinders marriage is dishonorable. Anything that belittles marriage is dishonorable. Anything that waters down marriage, anybody who says it's just a piece of paper, is dishonorable. And then notice what God says without mincing any words. Look what He says in the last part of that verse. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now, of course, those are old English phrasings, but it just simply means immorality, immoral sin. God very openly and honestly calls any sin that damages marriage by the right name. We call it cheating. Some say it's sleeping with somebody. Some others call it an affair. The fact is, the Bible says in each case, it is a sin. And it's a sin that has consequences. I saw an anti-litter sign plastered on a car that had Texas license plates. As they were driving by, this anti-litter sign said, don't mess with Texas. <laughs> the truth is, I think we could say the same thing about Scripture. Don't mess with marriage. God is very concerned about marriage. When a church in a community upholds the sanctity of marriage, it is helping people, not hurting people. We are not hurting people to deny uh, um, strange forms of marriage. We are helping people out of the just discipline of God. Two years ago in 2016 in Rowan County, Kentucky, County Clerk Kim Davis had a conviction, a Bible conviction that marriage was ordained by God. And therefore, as a county clerk, she could not put her stamp of approval and therefore the county's stamp of approval on anything that was not biblical marriage. As a result, she denied the uh, marriage licenses to same-sex couple. It became a huge issue in America. Atheists and secularists and other God-haters cried foul. They said, oh, this is terrible. How could she say that God, Christians, ordained marriage? Why, um, they said that marriage predated Christ by centuries. They cite Aborigines of Australia or in China where marriage goes back to three BC, uh, the third century BC. An easy answer to that is, folks, Christianity did not start in zero BC. Jesus was in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Marriage goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, it predates uh, Christ, but Christ was there in the beginning. It is an institution founded at the beginning of civilization. Genesis 2 and verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, 
and cleave to his wife. And they no longer are two individuals, really, although they're still individuals in their relationship to God. They actually become one flesh or one unit, a nuclear unit. God, as the father of Eve, brought her and gave his blessing on the marriage. And she must not marry without the consent of her father. Adam, with the consent of his father, heavenly father, married this woman, and they were one flesh. Now, folks, singleness is a great honor, and certainly nothing wrong with being single. Jesus was single. Paul was single. And our Lord reminded us that there's actually no marriage in heaven. And for those of you that are currently single, I'm sure for, for the most, it's temporary. But for a few, it might be a lifelong call to serve others. Others, uh, it's always fun to watch them get surprised at an age a little bit later. Some we've even seen get married in their 60s after been uh, single all their life. Yet, in the Bible, God advocates marriage for most people. Most people in the Bible are married. Most people in the Bible are married at an early age. One example would be Joseph and Mary. It's very clear that they were uh, mid-teens, maybe late teens. And yet in today's world, it's the exact opposite. It's less marriage and an older age. Now in America, the average age of a first marriage is now pushing 30. Now nobody, of course, certainly I'm not advocating child marriage. But the fact is, marriage rates have been falling for a decade, and now they're at their lowest rate in 150 years in America, and it is on a sharp downward trajectory. Fewer marriages of young people. In fact, if America continues, it won't be long until we're going to be just like godless Sweden. Sweden, like most uh, Western European countries, are atheistic, secular countries. Now in Sweden, only four marriages in a thousand people. In fact, early marriage uh, has become so taboo. If you get married at the young age of 21, you'll get some very strange comments from people, including other Christians. Marriage is a great gift of God. A lot of people talk about marriage like it's a death sentence. It's ridiculous. Folks, it is a gift from God. It is not a curse. It is a privilege. Marriage encourages people to grow up. Today in America, it's not an unusual sight to see a 25-year-old young single man drinking Red Bull, playing his Xbox all day, living with his mom. The adolescence used to be in the teens. Now it's in the 20s, and it is getting into the 30s. <laughs> Failure to launch? Yeah, you bet. But I'll tell you one thing. Marriage is a tremendous way to take that arrow out of the quiver, send it, and let it be affected by the, uh, the atmosphere, and it changes. That arrow gets uh, and hits its mark. Marriage is not a cure-all, but marriage is a wonderful protection against sexual immorality. We live in a sexualized culture, from the music everyone listens to, to the TV, to the internet, to Hollywood, to the school. I mean, children go to a state school, they're subject to it from the time they're in kindergarten. Little stories about uh, 
two homo penguins I was reading this week. It's just unbelievable the things that they subject our children to. Most young people have smartphones, which basically open them up to everything. Now, with that in mind, we marriage is a tremendous way to enjoy God's gift of sex in a way that glorifies and honors God. Now, what were some of the things that Dr. Zimmerman said in his study? He said that one of the, uh, one of the characteristics of a society that is uh, in decay is no-fault divorce. Now, anybody with even a little bit of discernment knows that marriage as an institution is in a crisis. And one of the most contributing factors to this, one fact that has led to the breakup of more marriages than any other single thing is no-fault divorce. People today can change mates like they take off their socks. No-fault divorce emerged in the 1970s. About 20 years or so after Dr. Zimmerman was speaking, it occurred in a few states and then pretty much every state. And today, every state has legalized no-fault divorce. Behind it, a revolution led by feminism. Feminism's number one tool is no-fault divorce. It would not surprise us then that 80% of divorces in America are initiated by women because it, it lets them enjoy their human rights so far. The fact is, it is tr- it's tragedy, and it's a bad law because no-fault divorce means that the courts side with the initiator, that the defendant is automatically guilty. You cannot defend yourself. You will become divorced. Now, obviously, we are, as God's people, very compassionate to people who have been divorced. But the fact is, divorce is the single greatest threat to marriage in our times. As God followers, as churches, we need to form a solidarity to warn of the dangers. And I will say this, it doesn't help struggling couples when they go to different churches, meet with the counselors, And those counselors recommend to those Christians to walk away from their mate. And that's what we're finding today in our churches. We cannot be a defender of marriage if we are not an enemy of divorce. You say, well, pastor, I've had a divorce. That make me a bad person? Of course not. Whether you're male or female, there are many circumstances that none of us could probably ever even know about. And I don't suspect that God expects anybody to endure unsafe unending immorality or abandonment. But the wonderful thing about our God is He is a God of second chance. And maybe God will allow you to reconcile or perhaps you have remarried. And if that's the case, just be a glowing testimony of the mercy of God and just say, God is a good God. Marriage rights that are meaningless. That's what Dr. Zimmerman said. You know, once uh, a marriage... uh, was a sacred service before God. Today, oftentimes, marriages are nothing more than a meaningless pretense, I should say the wedding, a meaningless pretense to outshine others. Instead of a gospel-focused, Christ-centered ceremony, it is more and more secular. People today will go to some place and be outside under the trees, and they will quote Shakespeare. I even read about one couple that was uh, quoting each other from the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. And I'm sure that was romantic. 
They say things like, we don't want it in a church and we don't want a religious ceremony because then it's more about God than it is about us. That is a symptom of that narcissism. The fact is, there's a reason why God uh, wanted us to have vows, scriptural vows, meaningful vows. Our forefathers, way smarter than us, way long time ago knew that there are rough patches that every marriage is go through. And when you're in that rough patch, some will testify the only thing that kept them married was the fact that they had vowed to God they would not divorce that person. And so I say to us, be careful about our marriage ceremonies. I say to us, be very meaningful in our vows. Then the acceptance of alternative marriage forms. In 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in a landmark so-called civil rights that it is fundamental right of same-sex couples to marry on the same terms as opposite-sex couples. For the first time in American history, a president of our country was so anti-God and anti-biblical, he supported this great blunder. The U.S. Supreme Court came across and said, it is the fundamental right of any person, whether they be same-sex or not, to marry. And basically, when they did that, they said that they recognize any relationship now, regardless if it is ordained of God or not. Many of the dissenting uh, judges wisely said, this is a slippery slope. They warned the others, they warned a nation that if this passes, this is a slippery slope that will lead to polygamy, multi-partners, incestuous marriages. There is no stopping now that the biblical form of marriage is no longer the standard, where is this going to end? You'd say, well, pastor, what's wrong with letting two people who love each other get married, whether they be of the same sex or not? What's wrong? Well, besides being unbiblical, immoral, and unnatural, what's wrong? <laughs> well, the fact is, same-sex marriages debase true marriage. It weakens society. Healthy societies have always been built on healthy families and healthy marriages. Broken homes and more are going to be the result of these thoughts. You know, I say to those nine black-robed jurists what they did, and they said that it's now legal, but the real judge, Almighty God, has already ruled, and that is that same-sex marriage, according to Scripture, is an abomination. It is an abomination by God. Then there's the widespread attitude of feminism. Now, God created woman in His image, just like He did man, and bestowed upon her equal dignity with the man. Feminism, if we were to give a just a, a simplistic definition would be basically any effort to avoid being feminine. Any effort to avoid being feminine. Today, radical feminists advocate for divorce, abortion, cohabitation. Key feminists don't see being feminist as a blessing, but as a weakness. In fact, say that things like pregnancy is a weakness to be overcome, not a unique and blessed feminine quality. How can women keep up if they're constantly being drugged down by bearing children? 
Let me just say very clearly, we announce today, we value God's ethic on men and women, equal in value, unique in their roles. Home church is unashamedly pro-marriage. Second of all, pro-children. Let's go to Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, please. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Let's read these verses out loud. They're such a beautiful passage. All right, ready, begin. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord. Let's read them together. Psalm 127, verse 3. Are they up there? All right, ready, begin. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the room is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. The fact is, it is God that opens up wombs, we're told in Scripture. Children are a heritage, a gift, a blessings, and not burdens. Obed in the Old Testament uh, faithfully cared for the Ark of the Covenant when it was out of the country for a time. And God said, I'm going to bless you for doing that, and gave him eight sons. The fact is, the Bible says a man with a wonderful group of children is like a man with a lot of arrows in his quiver. That's going to be great in a time of war. Now, some uh, married people are never given the opportunity to have children, and that's just God's plan. They're just as loved, just as blessed by God. God seems to have another plan for them. Others may be given one or two. Others are given 10 or 14 or even more. So others have medical issues, and they, cannot, they have to limit their amount of children. The fact is, I'm saying, there's no perfect number of children. God is in charge of that. When God's the planner, whether it's one or zero or 19 or 20, it doesn't make any difference. It's, they're all a blessing. But Scripture says very clearly, and these people remind us, and Dr. Zimmerman's uh, book says that there is a birth dearth coming. The global consequences of falling birth rate is disastrous today. It all really began in 1968 with Dr. Paul Elric's best-selling book, The Population Bomb. According to this book, hundreds of millions of people will be starving to death by now. As a result of that, as a fear of population, and so around the globe, everybody tried to do what they could to limit the amount of people that are born. Today, however, that has backfired. Europe, Russia, Asia, Japan especially, birth rates are falling below even replacement level. What they say about the birth rate now is this, that it's around 6 billion today. It'll go to 9 billion in 2050, and then it will take a steep decline, and the result will be catastrophic. There is a propagation of anti-family sentiment. Anti-children agenda is everywhere. We were in San Francisco recently, and it struck us, other than there where all the tourists are, where are all the children? There are no children that live in San Francisco. And uh, I, was, I wasn't surprised when uh, a few weeks later, I read this quote by Norman E., who's on the board of supervisors in San Francisco County. Everybody talks about children being our future, he said. If you have no children around, what's our future? Only 13% of the population in San Francisco are children. Of course, the greatest children attack, the anti-child, is abortion. 
And these are the days of easy abortion. Since 1973, let me give you a statistic that's going to just blow your mind. Since 1973, there have been 58 million Americans butchered, killed. You could take state after state after state and put all their population together, wiping out that many. And we wonder why America is suffering in so many ways. Pro-choice? No. That means anti-children. Pro-choice is actually no choice. The Old Testament is very clear. When the children of Israel decided for financial benefit, for the sake of whatever their reasoning, to offer their children to Molech, to take their babies and throw it into the heated arms of some uh, god, God dealt with that nation. And I remind us all, if you'll, the Bible is very clear, God punished Israel for killing their children, and America will not go unpunished. And that's why here at the home church, we work hard at from the nursery to the grave to give them a biblical education, a full service campus with many family friendly activities, seminars, conferences, retreats, special meetings, events of all kinds, week after week, straightforward Bible teaching and preaching. Here's why. Because we believe that strong believers make for strong churches and strong churches make for a strong nation. Pro-marriage, pro-children. And then finally, THC, the home church, is unashamedly pro-church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, gave himself for it. Christ loved church. We ought to love church. We ought to love the thing that he loves. Despite all of her imperfections, Christ loved her. Notice how he loved her. He loved her to his death. 1 Timothy 3.15, but if I tarry long, Paul writing to the young preacher, the young pastor Timothy, he said, I may not be there for a while and I want you to know how to behave yourself in the house of God. What was he talking about? Church. Why is it the house of God? Because God's unique presence is found there. No place else quite like the house of God which is the church of the living God. And notice what he calls it, the pillar and the ground of the truth. The ground is Jesus Christ. The pillars, those are the doctrines of Scripture. The pillar is Jesus, or the the ground is Jesus, the pillars are doctrine. And that's what we are here to do as a gospel-preaching church. You hear the term evangelical churches. I'm sure that not every evangelical church is probably believes all the Bible, but generally speaking, an evangelical church preaches the gospel. So when we say uh, the church, we're not talking about churches that don't preach the gospel. We're not talking about uh, the Mormon church that doesn't preach a real gospel. No, the four corners of any civilized society has always been family, government, business, and church. Those are the four corners of the foundation of any society. Strong families, a strong government, strong business, and strong churches. And that's why as America veers ever more left, more and more anti-Christian sentiment. As a church, we must unapologetically proclaim and stand against the moral ills. And as a result, we're not going to win all uh, 
the friends and maybe the community may not always like what we stand on. But the fact is, we stand for that which God stood for. There is no group today, no, uh, whether it be uh, gender, whether it be racial, whether it be national, there is no group today more discriminated against in our society than Christians. Christians' rights are the most trampled of any group. Freedom of expression, freedom of conscience, violation of parents' rights with regards to the education of their children. And the greatest attack on Christianity today is the marginalization of Christians. Militant atheism is attacking religion. From such uh, rock stars like Elton John, that crazy guy who said uh, he felt like all religion, all organized religion should be banned. This uh, last Christmas season, uh, these billboards popped up in different parts of our country. Notice what it says here. Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is to skip church. There is an anti-God, anti-church sentiment that's all over America today. Constant misrepresentation of Christians, a marginalization through negative stereotyping. Do you know how Hitler got a civilized, educated society to accept the concept that we need to kill everybody who was a religious Jew? How did they end Christians? How did he get them to do that? He marginalized them. He, by ne- negative stereotyping, hate crimes against American Christians are unbelievably more. There are, in just churches in the middle of some country field, have people coming in and attacking Guns. Who would have ever thought 50 years ago we'd have to have a security team? And I remind you, we do. And if there's anybody in this building decides to get up and take a pot shot, you might get one. I promise you, you won't get another one. Because there are men, there are men in our building right now. Right this moment, they've got a gun and they're waiting. And they've been trained. I hope it doesn't happen. Well, I hope it doesn't for sure. Then there are the disruption of services. Radical homosexual organizations, for example, one called Bash Back, an evangelical Assembly of God church in Michigan recently, a group came there, stormed the church, a group of radical, militant homosexuals, stormed the church, threw flyers, shouted that Jesus was a homosexual, stood there kissing in front of the church holding picket signs and upside-down pink crosses. This was their way to just make a statement. It's called bash back. And then, of course, all of us were amazed a couple of years ago, 2015, when speaking to women at the World Summit, Hillary Clinton made the most stunning declaration of a war on Christians when she said, for women's sake, deep Seated cultural codes and religious beliefs have to be changed. Have to be changed. She believes it is her job, it is her responsibility to change our beliefs and to accept her anti-God agenda. Well, I remind her, and we join with thousands of evangelical churches this morning, and we tell Hillary and we tell Feinstein, and we tell the radical left, it is not going to happen. Amen? Amen. Amen. 
They say when the blacksmith strikes his hammer repeatedly on the anvil, the hammers wear out. The anvil, the anvil just keeps wearing them out. And those who strike at Christians will only wear out. It only creates boldness in the heart of a real believer. There are so many other ways that the hostility against Christians are coming about. Liberty Institute is one watchdog helping religious freedom. They say their cases are doubling every year. Minor things like college students who are told they can't wear a cross because it might offend others. Of course, the other religious groups can wear their religious garb, but the cross can offend people. What we are seeing more and more is people taking the rights of God's people, and especially if for some reason the Chamber of Commerce thinks it's bad for business. If our God uh, Bible stand is bad for business, it's going to certainly bring our religious freedoms down. And so what do I say this morning? I say to each one of us, hold steady, hold for God, hold for others, and hold for our families. Because their objective may be to remove God from public life. But I say this this morning, we cannot remain silent. We must pray. We must give out the gospel. We must continue to do what we've always done. Let's keep building churches for God's glory. Let us be uh, pro-marriage and let us make sure that we are pro-children and we are pro-church. One of the early Christian leaders was named Tertullian. And listen to what he said at the persecution of his day. Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. For the seed of the church is the blood of the Christians. And every single drop of our blood springs up, some 30, some 60, and some a hundredfold. I'm asking you, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen here, we must know our position. We must stand for that position ever compassionately, ever lovingly, but make sure we stand. This is no time to cut and run. Pro-marriage, pro-children, pro-church. Would you bow your heads with me? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.